in this practice. It can be helpful to have uh, encouragement and guidance. But essentially, what we're learning to do is to generate that one from within. We might get empowered or encouraged or reminded of that possibility of the one who knows, or as they say in Thai, Puru. Puru means the one who knows, the Buddha. We may get that sense of that, be reminded that that's possible from someone outside ourselves, but uh, really it is uh, the, the whole purpose of this cultivation is to, is to bring that from within. So it's always a little curious and uncomfortable being in this uh, elevated situation of uh, sitting up here at the front. A little bit lower than the Buddha, but a little bit higher than you. (laughs) And all the projections that happen about uh, what you are or what you're not. But essentially, we are being a mouthpiece, a sharing encouragement for a practice that we we do as well, what we're doing. And this uh, this position is a, is a symbolic position. It's just the learning to elevate in our heart the position of that which wisely reflects, that which can honor what is worthy of honor, that which can make an offering of our being to that which we most cherish. Of course, our intentions change all the time. They change every. Every few minutes we have, can have, every second have different impulses, but we can actually choose. There can be a, a sense of conscious choice of what our deepest intention is, what our most cherished direction is. We might have all kinds of impulses, and yet still sense I, I, I yearn to move in that direction of, of deepening the puru, the one who knows how things are the wisdom faculty. I know that's my intention. My intention is to deepen my capacity to sensitively feel this circumstance called life and to respond to it within myself and with others in a healing way, a compassionate way. I know that's an intention, deep intention. We might think like that. So on behalf of everyone, we light the candles, we light the incense, we... We, we offer in our hearts the flowers and, and, and then bow is that, is that gesture on behalf of everyone to, to, to really remember what our deepest uh, wish is. At least I can speak for myself. I know. I want, to, I want to merge more and more with the truth of things so that I can respond according to what's true, according to what's right, according to what's kind according to what's needed. Sometimes what's needed might have a little more oomph, and sometimes what's needed might have a little more stretching gentleness. 
That can be the, the aspiration. And so, and so we might, uh, we're in this situation where we wisely reflect. That's just the, the kind of words that leave our mouth. Sometimes they're wiser than others. Sometimes they sound pretty good. But you should put a megaphone into what's inside sometimes. <laughs> and I, I, I feel for everyone in these first three days because we feel the same thing. We're all working with the, the human condition. The human condition. Being sensitive, having desire, having some be fulfilled and then go and change on it, having some be frustrated, having some at cross purposes, having high intellectual thoughts or murderous thoughts or resentful thoughts or rejoicing thoughts and then having all kinds of kind of instincts and drives and opinions and guilts and complicated and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a courageous thing we need to also learn to give ourselves some credit we're the world champions western cultural people are the world champions at beating ourselves up <laughs> world champions at seeing how much I haven't done world champions at picking out the little bit we did wrong maybe there's big bits we did wrong but we, we rarely reflect on on that which has been done, which is noble, which is skillful. It's courageous, and it's and it's. Uh, I have deep conviction, deep sense that to do what we're doing is important. It's courageous. It is a gift. It really is a gift to ourselves, to this earth, to our community, and to the world. Whatever is happening out there, with the earthquakes and floods and bombs and tensions and successes and failures and all the dramas that are going on around us and within us. I, though I might have had a lot more doubt about that some years ago, now I, I deeply, deeply sense and believe that, that, that learning just on a basic level how to be here, how to be realistic, is significant, important. To actually have a human birth and be here for it. <laughs> what is it like to be embodied? What is it like to have feelings that feel attracted and repulsed? What is it like to have a mind that can conceive and, and think and have opinions and views and what is it like to have an attention that can be go this way and this way into the future and to the past? And that can also focus, can hold the attention that also can let go. Why we don't teach this at school, I don't know. Gosh, I spent my life going to school. Went to Baylor, the, one of the best schools in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Then went to Princeton, one of the best schools in the United States. And went to Oxford, one of the best schools in the, in uh, I suppose they thought at the time, in the world. And nobody ever taught me meditation. <laughs> the use of, of our consciousness to illuminate things. 
is staggering to me. So however, however successful or failed we think we've been today, I, I, I just feel we, we also need to praise ourselves for just being here. And even if, I, if we think our, out of one out of ten, our samadhi hadn't even gotten off the ground. <laughs> just, just even working with the limitation of silence, even being able to sit in a room, even though we don't think there's samadhi, still relatively speaking, we're learning how to be here, learning how to bless agitation, bless a frantic mind with some quality of clear comprehension, with even being able to notice it, to feel that, to sense, even to sense the, the painfulness of an agitated mind is a significant insight. It's a very important insight. And some of us have... have a, I mean, I think all of us have made some progress at uh, also getting a sense of what maybe leads to more calm, what leads to more agitation. Some have had more success than others with the breath. And uh, because we're limited in, in the time we have, Tanisha and I are also very limited in our capacity to communicate. We're also limited in our own experience, very limited. And, and we, we've mainly been focusing on using the, the breath body as a, as a rallying point, a steadying point, an anchor for calm. I mean, actually the Buddha taught 40 samad possibilities. This was what he used himself. This is actually very handy. You don't need any special equipment. You've, you've, you've got a body, it's going to usually be breathing. <laughs> or, at least, or at least feeling something, vibrating in some sense or other. And that's useful. But, but not everyone uh, responds, and that's all right. And, and uh, we haven't really mentioned it that much, but we, it, some of us respond better, I think, than this might have mentioned, just to listening. Listening. Listening to sound is a way of of coming back to a sense of sustained presence, sustained presence. Some of us naturally find our mind uh, is drawn to the theme of friendliness, but becomes uh, a subject that that allows the the body-mind to to relax and become calm. That might be the one. In which case, we've touched on it, I haven't actually mention it directly, we'll be looking more at that in the, in the coming days. But in this sense, rather than maybe always going to the breath, going to the principle of whatever it is, not fighting it. Restless mind, befriending restless mind. Agitated mind, befriending agitated mind. Being patient with agitated mind. This body, having a kind thought for this body. The sense of being in this room, having a kind thought for being in this room. Not struggling with the... the, the notice how pity arises because the, the mudra, the mental gesture, is a, is a welcoming. I did suggest this, that if you're noticing that you're having a lot of aversion in one's meditation, that the medicine for that is, is into friendliness and kindness. So for some, that... that uh, will be easier to work with than the breath. 
And that's all right. We, we, we each find our own way. Even so, you told me now, it's three days. Even so, it's still really good to have a sense for our body. I mean, we do take it around everywhere. It is really useful to have a sense for how to listen to the body, how to adjust the body, how to refresh the body, how to calm the body. So some work at it is not uh, wasted. Another person uh, noticed that they more found themselves calmed when they looked at the Buddha. And they wondered, if, were they breaking the rules? <laughs> that's why we brought this Buddha. It is a, it's a lovely Buddha. And that is, that, that's one of the methods of meditation that the Buddha taught. For some, a different temperament, a devotional temperament, the, the, the reflection on qualities of Buddha or qualities of a saint, a saint or a sage just allows the mind to compose. Just remember the awakened one, the serene one, the balanced one, the one who's at ease, even to just say the name. In Thailand, that's one of the main mantras. It's just one word, Buddha, which is the nominative case for Buddha. So it, when you say Buddha, it means in here, the awakened one. And so you just use the mantra, Buddha. And then as that word dissolves, letting it dissolve back into the quality of just being awake. You can even link it with the breath, breathing in Buddha. Breathing out Buddha. Breathing in sweeping through the body, just uh, an awakened vibration. Buddha. See the body. Buddha. So that mantra works as a, as a vitaka, as something that directs the mind, in this case, to the sense of the awakened one, the awakened one. We can experiment. And, and, and find what, uh, what calms, what helps. This isn't the end of, of the practice. It isn't the most ultimate aspect of the practice. But, uh, but it is, uh, what I mean is this, this quality of learning to, to focus, to steady, to relax, to refresh, or as Tanisha would put it, to get some sense of simple well-being. It's, it's very significant, but it, it is not the end in of itself. My one tends, if one has some skill at it, if you don't have very much skill at it, you don't have to worry about attaching to it. If you do have some skill at it, it's, sometimes one can... And so when I started meditation, I, I don't know if I had skill, I had some little successes, and then I have a very greedy nature. So I need a little bit of pleasure... The mind goes right in there. And uh, so I, I tended to, to get really excited. So when I started to meditate, even before I, I um, became a monk, the few years before I became a monk, I sort of played around on my own. And I would uh, get still and calm. And then as one calmed, down, sometimes then an inner nimitta would appear, sometimes the inner nimitta of a light. And I remember once, this is just an example, that light would appear, and I'd watch it, and watch it and get stiller and stiller and stiller. 
and then feel like I'm going into it, into it, into it, into it, and then feeling so purified by the light because it got brighter and filling up the body and everything was so delicious and just ripples of kind of excitement and, and, and rapture. Then when I had my film, couldn't contain it any longer, I jumped up and just dashed up the stairs because I was so full of brightness, full of energy, full of excitement, because I was just <laughs> such brightness through my whole nervous system, and so I was going to immediately celebrate. Mm-hmm. So I ran up the stairs and went into my roommate's flat. I was a student at Oxford at the time, and he had a stereo. And so I was going to celebrate by playing my favorite music, and I ran over to the stereo and lifted up the lid and just promptly broke it off the stereo. <laughs> Imagine how long that blissful state lasted. (laughs) I kept wanting these states to somehow blow all fuses so that there would be nothing left. And then you would be done with it. I mean, after all, let's just be done with this thing. And so for me, that's what enlightenment was about. It was about blowing all fuses. (laughs) And so I tended, having that kind of temperament, I tended to have exciting meditation. Then I tended to do stupid things and then fall into hell and then find myself in heaven and then fall into hell and then go to heaven and fall into hell and get depressed about it. And then Ajahn Chah said something, our Thai forest master. He said, some of you are like a a thief who has a good friend who's a lawyer. You go out and steal something, you get put in jail, and you you know, you just phone up your lawyer and he'll bail you out. (laughs) But then you go and get put in jail again because you go do something stupid. He says, you got to also... Look at what's getting you thrown back into jail. Now, I don't want to put down this because we've been working on it, and it is significant, put down being able to get out of jail. In a sense, we're, we're finding through something quite blameless and beautiful. I mean, the blessings that come from this practice when cultivated through a lifetime are so precious. It means we need very little. We don't have to go and fight somebody over land. We don't have to go harm anybody. When we learn how to taste the beauty of simplicity, to enjoy breathing, to enjoy walking, to enjoy moving, to enjoy presence of mind, that is, that is a treasure. And when we pass that on to others, that's a treasure, any little bit that we develop. And in a sense it does... It can get us out of trouble, but notice the notice the control that the, that is in it. It's it's a set up circumstance. One is turning away from this and turning away from that and removing the mind from from certain things and using a certain will in a skillful way to refresh. It was fair enough thought, but it was just wishful thinking that I could just blow out all the fuses and then everything would be done. I mean, that's what the Buddha did all those years when he tried to go in very high states. He kept coming back down. 
or as Ajahn Shah would say in another one of his beautiful images, it's like putting a stone over grass. The grass stops growing. But when you take the stone off and the light comes, then it, then it will start up again. When we're in samadhi, if we have a certain skill and can feel the hindrances disappear, it is a relief. It is wonderful. But it doesn't mean they're gone for good. And, and just, just, to, just to reflect on that. And so in the, in the, the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, when he, when he had this childhood memory and, and, and did just what we were doing, are doing, after he refreshed himself and ate something and got stronger, he then applied the mind, adjusted the breath body, felt the rapture, felt the ease, felt the coming together, then even let go of the thought, felt the rapture stronger, refreshed his body, even let go of rapture, felt ease, refresh the body, refresh the mind, even let go of happiness so that there was equanimity. Just unified mind equanimity. But then he didn't stop there. Then he used that quality of mind to, to inquire, to look into things, to look into this circumstance. So then what is that? That's then relinquishing just this one object relinquishing the control of having everything just like this, starting to open up the investigation. And, and this was what is called uh, insight, the insight practice. And too, I mean, there was all sorts of insights that the Buddha had the night of his awakening, but I think let's, let's look at... Uh, Let's just look very basically at what we've all, all of us who've been in the Buddhist world, have heard again and again and again. But I think we need to continually reflect on this principle. The Buddha, with a mind that was composed, began to see the changing nature of things. Just the changing nature of a bird call, the changing nature of a breath that we call in-breath, and then it disappears, and then we call it an out-breath, and it happens, and then, then it's gone. Of a thought, Even the thought, I'm very peaceful. A thought that when there isn't real attentiveness, we don't notice. We just believe the appearance of the thought, I'm peaceful. When we don't notice very deeply when the thought is, especially on the third day, I'm hammered. I've been battered. And we're the hammered one. 
Do we actually notice that that thought, I am hammered, actually dies and dissolves? And who are we before the next thought arises that we happen to believe in? In deeply being able to watch the breath and in a calm state, then maintain some of that quality of presence of mind and then even be able to, as one breathes in, reflect on change. Breathing in, I notice change. It's not an intellectual thought. It, it is an intellectual thought, but the thought is directing attention to actually in an opened-eyed way. The heart's open to experience Breathing in, I experience changing nature of breath. Breathing out, I experience changing nature of breath. Notice when the uh, meditation is more leaning toward the samatha side, it's not so interested in the nature of, it's more interested in smoothing so that it's comfortable so that it becomes refreshing. There is a reflective aspect to that, but it's not penetrating so much to the nature of change, and it's not cutting into the idea of who's meditating. There still can be the idea of my tranquility, my refreshment. And the sense of mine is very much tied up with a sense of having something that we can own my body, my mood, my circumstance, my suffering. On that night, when, when he actually, and when, when we actually, on this night of our awakening, which is always possible in every moment, and we actually look at the changing nature of things. When we notice the body vibrating, shimmering, and the pulse beating, and, 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 and the forms around us shifting and changing, and the light fading, and the, and the weather shifting, and the seconds ticking, Then, then where is there something that we really can possess? And the Buddha had insight then into what's called dukkha, into to suffering. That experience of, of difficulty, of anguish, of pain, of... non-perfection that to try to hold on to something that's changing and to want it to give us stability to try to hold on to something that's, that, that's essentially unstable and asking it to, to be different oh sun don't set Or, oh, magnificent, blinding, nimitta, 
explosive insight never abandoned me. Or those wonderful moments when there's a lovely moment and, and something in the heart, and it's natural, something in the heart says, yes, it swallows that, it becomes that, it grasps that intimate moment, that beautiful moment. And then, and then, and then we feel upset, why were you taken away from me? But when we actually, with our own heart, see the ever-changing nature of things, then we don't. Then it becomes obvious. But until we see that, it's like what Ajahn Chah, our our master in Thailand, says with his basic earthy wisdom. He says, like going up to a chicken and saying, "Why aren't you a duck?" <laughs> and we thought that's silly, but we do that. Or going up to a duck and say, "Why aren't you a chicken?" When the Buddha presented his, when he realized that changing, that when things are changing, and that because if something is changing, its nature is not to be able to satisfy us. It can't. There is no way something that's changing can be pinned down and grasped. And if it can't be pinned down and grasped, then you can't really and truly call it mine. You can say that it's mine, but it's not really mine. But if we grasp at something thinking it's mine, and then it, that's called birth. And then when it shifts and changes, that's called death. So if we have a peaceful moment and we grasp at it, that's called birth. Then when it shifts and changes, what, what, where's this despair coming from? Because we thought it was mine and then it's gone. We grasp at youth and then, and then if, 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 when old age comes, if we suffer about that, that's because we, we haven't really contemplated the changing nature of a body. Basically, the, that, that night the Buddha realized that everything that arises ceases. Sounds very simple. What comes into being dissolves. Whether it's a thought, whether it's a galaxy, whether it's a meditation retreat, whether it's a mood, whether it's a flower, whether it's a human being, what comes into being we think is a thing, it's not a thing. It comes into being, it dissolves according to the laws of Dhamma. In seeing the stress that came from not realizing that, in letting go of that basic delusion, in letting go of grasping chickens and wishing they were ducks, grasping human bodies and wanting them to give us stability and, and eternal happiness, grasping another being and wanting them to make us happy, Grasping our own thoughts and hoping that they'll just tell us who we are. He realized that that very grasping led to suffering. He had the experience of letting go. The experience of non-grasping. The experience then of awakening to the timeless, the eternally bright, the beautiful, that which isn't arising and ceasing. That which is, that which always is, but is missed as he would put it, 
that eternal brightness called the Pabhasarajitta, which the Buddha says is at the core of all things, all conditions. Vimuttisarasabhedhamma, one of his sayings, it's so lovely. Every single circumstance, Sabedama means everything, Sabedama, Vimuttisara, with deliverance as essence. Every single thing has as its essence deliverance. Everything. Every moment, the painful knee, the blinding light, the stupid mistake we just made, even the dullness, that every single condition, if we look into its essence, the essence of every condition is that which is. At the, at the heart of every single condition of body-mind that we experience is this ocean of that which is, that which is bright, that which is awake and listening. It's missed, it's not seen because the mind is so preoccupied with wanting a chicken to be a duck, wanting a condition to, to, to be solid, to be real. We go around chasing and then it goes and dissolves on us. I mean, what happened to the day? went and dissolved on us. <laughs> Where did it go? How many incredible thoughts did we have about what today was like? And where did they go? And so though, and so though we're, I think this, this, this foundation of learning to be with moments as they are, I think we should continue that, and, and, and especially those who are who are having some success with it, fine. You don't have to kind of throw it out the window. But to open, begin to open the door for reflectiveness so, so that we're, we're not just asking our, our fancy lawyer to keep bailing us out of jail, but that we use some of this power of mind that we've been cultivating to, to look into the nature of things and to start reflecting on on, on what the Buddha called the noble truth of dukkha, that the experience of suffering is, is not to be ashamed of. Even if we feel like we haven't gotten anywhere, the experience of, of suffering is not to be ashamed of. It's that which ennobles us when we realize it's something to be understood. When he finally presented his teachings, he, this is what it was his first thing that he said. There is suffering and it needs to be understood. It's not really technically perhaps correct according to the scriptures, but Ajahn Chai used to tell us the Buddha's first sermon was a failure. And that was right after his enlightenment. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't anything similar to my rushing up the stairs and breaking the top off the stereo. But I would imagine he was really excited or really blissed <laughs> or so relieved. Imagine eons of, of doing all this work and, and really... And we get a little calm and notice our eyes shine. We get a little calm and our skin looks nice. Imagine someone who's just been sitting for days blissed out. So the first person he met was somebody named Upaka. And Upaka obviously saw the Buddha and said, Friend, your features are serene. 
your complexion is is radiant. Who's your teacher? What uh, teaching have you been following? And I think uh, the Buddha gave one of his lion's roars, something like, I am the all-transcendent one. Such a one as me has no teacher. Something like that. There is no, I have no teacher. I accomplished it through my efforts. In a kind of roar. And then uh, the guy said, well, you must be a universal victor. And and the the Buddha gave this lion's roar affirmation. And and the guy, the scriptures say, the guy kind of shook his head and said, may it be so, friend, and, and kind of walked off. And with with Ajahn Chah, I mean, you never see it written in the books as a failed first sermon, but uh, (laughs) our teacher always told us that was a failed first sermon. Because what's a guy going to do with that? I'm an all-transcendent one. (laughs) And what's what's interesting is, and he had some time to think about it, because he, he walked all the way to Sarnath in the deer park where his uh, buddies were who had abandoned him because he got soft and ate something. And, <laughs> and, he, was, and he didn't try this. I am the all-transcendent one because, I mean, it was a little tricky with them anyway. <laughs> in fact, they determined not to, not to wait on him if they saw him again because he was a backslider. He'd eaten and not only eaten, accepted food from a young maiden. Oh, God. Uh, anyway, they decided they weren't going to... But uh, his radiance, when as he walked up, they couldn't help themselves. They, they prepared to see, but they weren't going to be that interested. And when he, when he said he had discovered uh, the truth, that they want to hear about it, three times they said, basically, sure. <laughs> and then uh, the Buddha then said well have I ever said this before and they said no and he said then please listen he said there is suffering and that's a pretty safe start <laughs> And notice that's a place we can all begin. He didn't even, he didn't start off in saying, there is Nibbana. Say it after me, Nibbana. (laughs) Say it again, Nibbana. (laughs) You know, I mean, he said, there is suffering. And this was the, the, this was, and it needs to be understood. An exhortation, this experience of suffering, is something that needs to be turned to, whereas before he tried to crush it, before he tried to get so high above it. This is an important insight, that the suffering of life, the difficulty of life, not getting what we want, or the pains, or the despairs, or even the subtle sense of dis-ease, there is that. He didn't say, there's your suffering and my suffering. Dispassionately, there is suffering. It needs to be turned to and understood. 
and that's ennobling because it already is a reality principle. It's allowing, encouraging the heart not to avoid but to open to. And the second noble truth is this suffering, once we've opened to it, we begin to see how it's generated. This suffering has a cause. That cause is this, this current, this unconscious, deluded current of mind that's always, he didn't say wanting a chicken to be a duck, but it's in there. This unconscious desire to always find that which is pleasing and, and hold to it, keep it, possess it, delighting in something and then becoming that, what's called tanha. This deluded desire generates the sense of something that we can really get birth. And that this, this current needs to be let be. This current needs to be abandoned. This current needs to be recognized and put down, not, not crushed. Let be. And then the third noble truth the ending then of suffering is to be realized when we really can let go, let go of the grasping, let go of the rejecting. doesn't mean not to touch anything. We're in contact with the world. But it's that deluded, distorted sense of owning, the distorted sense of trying to get rid of that then obscures all that unconscious movement, obscures us from seeing what the beauty of what is. In that letting go, then there is the realization of the ending of suffering. That truth needs to be realized, the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the ending of suffering, needs to be cultivated. So that there is suffering, didn't say, is not a depressing thing, there is suffering, but it, it comes to be, we can begin to study we don't have to get a lawyer anymore. We're, we're actually studying ourselves. We're becoming wise about what, what causes us to fall into suffering. When we start to then bring into our contemplation with the power of this accumulated presence of mind, this energy of wanting and not wanting, grasping and rejecting. We also can learn how to practice letting be, letting go, even when we don't have samadhi even when the, some machine is bothering us or when there's too much pain or there's just too much kind of chaos and, there's, and the mind is all over the place and maybe we're even thinking it shouldn't be this way. And what happens if we just let go of wanting it to be another way? The nervous system might still be flopping about. But what is, what is if we're just with there is a misfiring nervous system can be, actually be very peaceful. Amazingly peaceful when we're not adding to the moment all the shoulds and shouldn'ts. And this path, that which leads to the realization of the ending of suffering is what we've been practicing. It's a path of restraint. It's a path of impeccability. It's a path of learning to develop presence of mind and samadhi just as we're doing. And it's also a path of inquiry and insight. 
This is something in the coming days. We can continue working on the the skills that we've been working on, but then adding to that uh, the discerning mind that sees the suffering that comes from grasping and finds the ease that can come from letting be and can get a feeling for actually trusting in letting be and finding ourselves standing in a bright, a peaceful, timeless place. Whereas the Buddha says, all things merge. Who would have thought, oh, not me, I'm... All things merge, you mean my heart is... Everything merges? All these kind of thoughts, oh, not me, I mean Jesus might be in there, and, and Buddha, and... All these kind of thoughts. Can we keep seeing that each thought, each circumstance, if we look to its essence, there's freedom and that every condition does merge, and that even all our hopes and despairs keep merging in this quality of presence, this quality of that which never dies, which is possible for us to realize, because it's our true nature. And in this circumstance, with good friends that can encourage us, let's don't put things out of the realm of possibility. Let's keep our minds open. Let's be patient and allow this process to, to unfold, allow the factors of the path to develop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.